part of this computer. All right, friends. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. We are endeavoring our topic today, which is the priest, the philosopher, and the scientist, and the new age of medicine. And I'm just going to jump right into it. So uh, get ready, folks, because there's some interactive type questions coming up. Here we go. So the oh. philosopher, the scientist, the priest, he's in there too, and the new age of medicine. Uh, this is me at, um, I have, this is me taking two selfies. So you know how everyone prides themselves on being sort of a nerd, right? I get that. And maybe you think, maybe you think you're a nerd. I'm going, I'm swinging for the fence here because on the, on the right is a picture of me with Yale's copy of the Vesalius's Humana Corpora, you know, on the making of the human body. So that's the one at Yale. And then in the fall, when I was at Cambridge, uh, they have their own, and that's a selfie with me at the Vesalius there. And the point to this is um, we're going to talk about Vesalius because he has a very important role in how we identify as, as healers. So here's the scoop, folks. Um, I invite us to consider the different models of healers through history. Uh, I invite us to reflect upon the science and the culture which drive our medical practice. And I invite us also to contemplate what is the age we are in now? What is the age of medicine in which we are in now? So that is our, our task for the next oh, 20, 30 minutes, and then we shall have some conversation. So this is what I mean, folks, uh, are the age of medicine. When you were sick, in the ancient Greek world, you would see a priest. You would, you would uh, uh, if you were sick, you would see a priest. You would see a priest of Asclepius. You would have a consultation with this priest uh, who would take a history. And in particular, um, you would be invited to spend the night in the Asclepion. And the Asclepion was uh, you know, yeah, dedicated was, to the temple of Asclepius. Yeah, I'm going to mute. Let's see there. We got one of our colleagues yeah. who's uh, maybe speaking there. And I'll just invite. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, so you would be invited to spend the night in, in the Asclepion. And you would, uh, uh, as you enter the, the Asclepion, you would see these great tablets of, of testimony of all the the magical healing that has happened in this temple. And there would be uh, snakes uh, slithering about uh, the temple because the snake was a symbol of resurrection. And this is a, a side note. The snake, as you know, is in the caduceus, that symbol of medicine that we use today. It's actually on the shield of Yale. Uh, the snake was an ancient Egyptian symbol. Uh, that, um, the snake was an ancient Egyptian symbol um, that, uh, uh, because the snake sheds its skin and that was about three or 4,000 BCE. And then of course, for those are, who are familiar with the Hebrew scripture, 
there's this moment where Moses, uh, the people of Israel are in the wilderness and they are stricken by a plague and Moses raises up a staff upon which there is a, a copper or bronze snake. And when you look at the snake, you, um, you would be healed. And so that ancient tradition of the snake as, as a symbol of healing uh, made its way to the ancient Greek world. And so you would spend the night in the Asclepion and in the, in the morning you would consult with the priest again. And the priest would uh, usually prescribe um, some kind of cathartic, right? You have to rid the illness uh, that is within you through purging, also specific diet, rest. And then you, you would be in, asked about your dreams. Uh, what did you dream? And, and the priest would interpret your dream. So in the ancient Greek world, if you were sick, you would, uh, in the ancient Greek world, if you were sick, you would, uh, you would consult with a healer. Now, things changed uh, around the 300s, 4th century of the Common Era. And the person we must recognize is Galen of Pergamon. Galen uh, it should be someone that we, any, any one of us who is in healthcare, we should remember because he was a physician um, in uh, the, it's what's now Turkey, but Pergamon was the great centers of learning. It was, uh, they had a library that was second only to Alexandria. And he uh, was a physician to emperors and gladiators. And he was the one that took the writings of Hippocrates to, um, uh, and, and codified them and expanded them. And so if you'll remember the, the four humors of Hippocrates, black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm, illness is caused by uh, an imbalance of those four humors. And one of the treaties that he wrote uh, was that the best physician is also a philosopher. And that um, the, the wall painting there is when um, uh, Hippocrates is conveying his wisdom to Galen. Now, for 1,300 years, 1,300 years, Galen was a bestseller. And, uh, and it was in all the, the curricula of all the medical schools in Western Europe and in the Middle East. Uh, and only in the Renaissance were his tracks um, no longer used late, late Renaissance, early, early age of enlightenment. Um, two thirds of the extant ancient Greek writing comes from Galen. He was an intellectual uh, giant. So we switch from, from priest in the ancient Greek world to philosopher in the, in the medieval world. Um, and, uh, and so this is a shout out. So here at Yale, we have this marvelous, marvelous collection of many of Galen's works. And as uh, serendipity would have it, there is a resident in the MedPeds program that I run and his name is Galen. <laughs> so Galen, uh, that's a picture of, of, of Dr. Galen Naylor who's reading medieval Latin, a Latin translation of Galen of Pergamon. Uh, and so, you know, if you come to the Yale Med Pete's program, we all do a deep dive in medieval Latin. Anyway, just a shout out for Galen. Okay, so um, now humors, 
these, the four humors, black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood had this amazing uh, architecture. So not only were these four humors in your body and an imbalance of these humors would cause disease, but each of these humors were associated with uh, a different personality. So if you were if you were sanguine, you would be courageous. If you were melancholy, black bile, mel melana, and cholera, black bile, you'd be depressed or introspective. You'd be phlegmatic. If you were phlegmatic, you'd be calm, thoughtful, unemotional. Choleric, you know, the yellow bile, you'd be short-tempered, ambitious. Uh, so, so, so the imbalance of these four humors would cause disease, but also uh, impact your impact your personality. And more than that, um, each of these four humors were associated with different properties. So on the left there, you see fire and air and water and earth. Um, and then each of these elements were associated with different qualities like hot and dry and wet and cold. So you can see there phlegmatic, for example, was associated with water and would be wet and cold. So if, if you had too much phlegm in your system, you would balance that out by adding some, some spicy foods, maybe something that would be have fire in it, right? Or if you had too much fire, namely a fever, you would, you would um, get rid of that to restore the balance of too much heat and too much dry in your system by bloodletting. And that's why we would, would bleed people uh, for thousands of years. Not only that, in the four humor medieval cosmology, uh, uh, every humor was associated with different planets. And so astrology uh, was actually integrated into your health, into your fate, into uh, the imbalance of your humors. So if Mars, which you know, was associated with being hot and dry and, you know, fire. If Mars was moving into your astrological sign, well, be careful, right? Because that's going to impact on your health. This was a very complicated, complex, rich system of, of illness and disease that combined astrology and psychology and seasons of the light, your life and the foods that you would eat. Um, I mean, truly, this was uh, an amazing accomplishment of, of the human intellect. And it's fascinating because, you know, for the most part, um, it, it was wrong, <laughs> you know. And so, um, so one of the, the folks I want to give a shout out to is, is this very special integrative practitioner, uh, Hildegard of Bingen. And she had, she was an abbess in Northern Germany and uh, was probably the most prominent female intellect uh, for about a thousand years. Um, she, um, and maybe one of the most influential of the middle ages, she um, was an abbess she wrote extensively uh, about um, healing and illness, and she integrated the four humors, 
with Christianity and with local herbal medicine. And she had a theory that was completely, uh, completely unfounded before. She had this idea that illness is caused by uh, veriditas, which is green energy, essentially, the energy of the earth uh, that was a gift from God. And that the way to healing was to treat your body uh, as a garden. And so uh, this, her, Hildegard of Bingen came into our modern popular culture through this book, uh, God's Hotel by Victoria Sweet, um, who describes how uh, in, in Victoria Sweet's practice, um, if you were ill, you would, you know, if you had a, an ulcer on your back, well, you would, you would, you would remove the weeds, you know, you'd get rid of the dead skin and you would improve the nutrition and re remove things that would impede the growth and healing of, of the body. Um, Hildegard of Bingen, she preached in all of the most powerful, most prominent pulpits across the German speaking world and wrote scathing letters to popes and princes and kings across Europe. Um, and so on her, on the left of your screen is a, a picture of her uh, receiving divine transmission from God. Uh, and that was her method. She would say, oh, I am uh, but a woman, she would say, but um, I speak uh, on behalf of God, empowered by God. And that is um, uh, how she accomplished so much. And if you go on YouTube and you, you type in uh, music, Hildegard of Bingen, uh, 1,000 years later, we are still singing uh, her, her hymns. So shout out to Hildegard of Bingen, um, uh, a giant of medieval thought. The other person, uh, two other people that we need to acknowledge in this, in this medieval period about understanding our healer as philosopher, healer as philosopher is Avicenna and the Islamic golden age. So he was from the 11th century, uh, a polymath, a philosopher, a physician, astronomer, psychologist, poet. Uh, he presided in one of the early hospitals of, of, the, of the early okay. uh, uh, Islamic uh, golden age. And his contribution uh, among many was he reconciled uh, Islamic theology with Aristotle, uh, and the uh, and so he um, uh, was uh, uh, brilliant in that. Uh, and I, I might get it wrong because I, I know Nicholas Albin is on the call, uh, but my understanding is that he held in tension uh, faith and reason uh, and sort of reconciled the two there. His canon of medicine from the 11th century was used all the way up through the 18th century in, in, in Western medical school curricula. So again, you know, for the academics on the call, imagine you wrote a book and 700 years later, uh, it was still a runaway bestseller, right? Mm -hmm. um, that rivals, you know, JK Rowling. So Avicenna, uh, oh, and he was from um, one of the stands like Kyrgyzstan, like the far, far Eastern side of of these Islamic caliphates. And then our next person uh, from this Islamic age is Averroes or Ibn Rashid, who was a little later than uh, Avicenna. And he was on the Western side uh, of, 
of the Islamic kingdoms. There were sort of two competing caliphates, if I remember correctly. Um, and he was very important. He's the only Muslim who is um, in the Sistine Chapel there on the bottom right, and the only Muslim in Raphael's famous painting, uh, The School of Athens. So he was a 12th century philosopher, translator, jurist, physician, and uh, his in, one of his important contributions um, was that he led uh, these very important translations of Aristotle and Galen back into the West. So as uh, folks might remember, much of Greek literature was lost uh, when Rome fell, when, um, uh, when the Greek-speaking world was sort of culturally cut off from the Latin-speaking West. And so the, in this, as, this Islamic golden age, Aristotle and Plato and others, uh, the Greek literature was actually translated into Arabic and then translated from Arabic back into Latin. And not only that, there were these beautiful commentary uh, from uh, Islamic philosophers that were also reintroduced into, um, uh, into the West. And so, I forgot, I'm and so we don't have to five. Um, you still have time to pick a rock up. Um, I get out of school at six, Oopsie, someone's, six uh, o'clock or six thirty. Okay. So the, um, uh, so we uh, in the West owe a great debt to, um, to these, to these philosophers. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's part of our common consciousness uh, about, about this contribution. So uh, Avicenna, Hildegard of Bingen, Avicenna, Averroes, um, if you haven't heard of them, uh, do a little dive because it's pretty special. All right, folks, if you take out your phones and I invite you to, um, I invite you to go to uh, take your phone and click on that QR code. Or if you're on a laptop, you can go to polleverywhere.com, pollev.com slash wisdom. And we're going to play a game uh, uh, where we just check the temperature of the room. What is the bone of lose? What is the bone of lose? Um, give me, hey, Steve, can you give me a thumbs up? Is that working for you? Okay. All right. Guillermo, you know? All right. So let's see. I'm going to go back because sometimes it's easier to, I'm going to go back. Sometimes it's easier to uh, uh, use that QR code. Um, and, uh, and I'm just going to, it's going to take a vote. What is the bone of lose? The structure of from which the body can regenerate is the bone of lose named after light where the sweet seat of wisdom lies is the bone of lose the orbital bones or is the bone of lose a mystic relic from a greek temple with healing properties um and so i invite you to uh, anonymously in this non-scientific way uh, respond to this question. <laughs> um, the interactive part of our uh, of our our quiz part of of the talk. Daniel, is it working for you, my friend? 
Okay. All right. So uh, the structure, what is the bone of Lou's? We'll give it another two, you know, another minute here. I see Jake's using his phone. Lubna, is it working for you? Okay. Nick, did you, did you answer? How'd I do on my Averroes and Avicenna? Okay. Thanks, man. Cause you gave a talk a couple years ago and uh, uh, you were part of my inspiration for this part of my talk. Okay. So, all right. Now here's the thing. And I, this is fun, right? So the bone of lose. So the whole group is wrong. <laughs> Everyone's wrong. Uh, so the bone of lose uh, was this mystical bone at the base of your spine. Uh, essentially, it was a pluripotent stem cell, if you will. It was at the base of the spine from which the body could regenerate. Uh, the bone of lose. Everyone was thinking lose and light and eyes and all that stuff, but no. And so Galen of Pergamon wrote about this extensively. But then in the Renaissance, people started actually doing dissections. In the ancient Greek world, uh, it was forbidden to desecrate a body but through a dissection. Uh, so we think Galen of Pergamon, maybe he dissected some human bodies, but but probably on the side uh, without anyone knowing. And he probably learned about anatomy from treating gladiators. So, so, uh, uh, so he didn't really know about some aspects of anatomy. And so the next step on this is um, the next step on this that folks should know in our understanding of, of healers as philosophers is, is Vesalius. And this is the Fabrica Humana. Now, this is a colored version, um, but I'm going to point out a few things that are very special. Uh, so back in the day, uh, uh, the, the medical school professor would read from Galen, and at the bottom of the, in the pit, would be the butchers who would be doing the dissection. This is in the Renaissance. Vesalius said, aha, no. Um, the teacher should be at the bedside. And so, um, oops, the teacher should be at the bedside. So if you look there, there's a human being um, and at the bedside is Vesalius. And at the bottom underneath the table are the butchers because they've been relegated um, out of a job. And they, you can see on the, the gentleman in the red is pointing to a gentleman in yellow and that is Galen. As if to say, Galen is what we used to do. And Galen is looking down at a dog as if to say, okay, dogs are not being dissected anymore. Humans are. Galen, his finger, the gentleman in yellow, is looking, is pointing to Galen as if to say, aha, um, aha. Uh, Galen is the new way of doing, of teaching anatomy. And then Galen is pointing to the skeleton that is in the position of the lector. Um, and as if to say the true teacher is the human body. So this is a marvelous woodcut. The person who did this, the name of the person has been lost uh, to history. But this is where we shift from uh, the healer as a philosopher to more of a, a, a almost a healer as, as a physician. Um, a healer as a scientist, healer as a scientist. So 
you know, this is where this takes off. This is a, so when I was in at Cambridge, um, they, you know, they shared with me that Harvey um, uh, was uh, on the faculty of Cambridge and that's a statue of him there. And he's, it's hard to tell, but he's holding the human heart. And that's his famous figure that many of you have shown, seen where he shows that blood uh, returns uh, from the heart, uh, returns to the heart. Uh, Galen believed that, that the heart would continue to pump and blood would go to the periphery and, uh, and then kind of disappear and that the blood would be continually regenerated uh, from the liver. Uh, and of course, you know, when you do the math, it's like thousands of gallons an hour of blood would need to be generated. And so Harvey figured that out. And then on the right was uh, Morgagni. Morgagni, he um, was much later, you know, 18th century. Uh, he's the one that figured out that disease happened in anatomic locations. And his famous work, um, the de Sidibus, was to say, look, uh, basically it was up to date. <laughs> uh, you know, we, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the encyclopedia online uh, called Up to Date, uh, uh, Morgagni did this uh, on his own. Essentially, he created these, these beautiful, amazing, intricate books where you could look up a symptom, you know, headache, abdominal pain, uh, vision changes, difficulty breathing, and it would be cross-listed with patient cases. You know, somebody who has right lower quadrant pain, anorexia, fever. Well, we don't know what happens, but we know there's this thing called the appendix and, and, and the appendix looks inflamed and it looks ill. And that's how we know that disease happens in anatomic locations. And it got us away from the four humor uh, theory. Pretty amazing, right? So this is where things change. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I'm not gonna ask folks to, I'm gonna invite people to give a shout out. Um, Rene Lenick was one of the most famous French physicians of this era. What did he invent? Did someone wanna put this in the chat? What did Rene Lenick invent? The blood pressure cuff, the stethoscope, the microscope, or the ophthalmoscope. Let's see if there's anyone, does anyone wanna put anything in the chat or give a shout out? I know it's one of these group uh, sessions and no one wants to be embarrassed by guessing incorrectly. Um, all right, I'll just, I'll just, does anyone have a guess? Let's ask, well, uh, all right. So I'll tell you, it was, it was the stethoscope. He invented the stethoscope. Um, hey, there we go. Jake. Good job, Jake. Thanks, man. <laughs> the med student steps up. Um, yeah. So he invented the stethoscope and this, and I, I share this because the, you know, the stethoscope is this modern symbol of what it means to be a healer, right? When you go to medical school, you get a white coat and you get a stethoscope. That is the symbol. And this is where it came from. Now, the French, so medicine in the West uh, was the center of medicine in the 18th century was, was Paris. And every hospital was due, was, had a different symptom. There was a skin hospital, a hospital for children, a hospital for uh, STDs. They didn't know it was STDs at the time, a hospital for respiratory issues. And this is where modern medicine starts to take shape because this is where the attending physician, dun, da, da. so people like, 
you know, Dr. Paul and Dr. Hurst, uh, you know, we would preside and there would be an army of students and residents sort of following us about. And we would listen with our ear uh, against the chest uh, to make a diagnosis. We didn't really have great treatment, but we could make a prognosis. We would say, sir, prepare your affairs. You know, you're, you're not going to survive this. And that was helpful to people. Uh, but Dr. Lenick realized it was, uh, you know, improper to be putting your uh, ear against patients' chests, especially um, the Parisian ladies, uh, apparently. And so that's why he invented the stethoscope. So, so this is, we shift, right? So anatomic basis of disease, there was still this idea of, of, of physician as philosopher, a natural philosopher, right? But we're, it, it looks very different from the, the natural philosopher of Hildegard of Bingen and Avicenna, right? So it's getting more anatomic. It's starting to look a little more modern. Um, and then this idea of physician as scientist, physician as scientist happens really in the 19th century. And we shift the center of medicine in the West from France to Germany. And uh, for those of you who have taken, you know, been medical students and have taken a history of medicine class or microbiology class, everyone knows about Koch's hypothesis, Robert Koch. Now he was a very special person. He was a frontier military physician working in solitude. He was not connected to a university. He did not have a lab until later in his career after he figured out there's this thing called a microscope. You can look through the microscope and there are these little germs um, called bacteria and that they cause disease. He's the one that figured that out. Uh, so he discovered TB, anthrax, cholera, pneumococcus uh, by, and, and the Koch's hypothesis that we all learned from microbiology is that uh, for to, to, to make sure this microbacterial entity causes the illness, you have to extract it from someone with the illness. You must inject it into another being, a mouse, a human or whatever, inject it into another being. They must get sick with the same symptoms and then you must extract it from that, from that entity. So it's called Koch's hypothesis. And he became famous in his day, but he began in obscurity and grew all of this stuff, the anthrax and the cholera and everything. He grew it in his kitchen. <laughs> so imagine that the road to fame, uh, grow tuberculosis and cholera and anthrax in your kitchen. But this is the, the moment in the late 19th century when, um, when, when physicians become scientists with a white lab coat. Now, fast forward uh, in the early 20th century in 1910 in America was this report financed by the Con Carnegie Foundation or the Rockefeller C Carnegie Foundation called the Flexner Report. It came out in 1910 and it was very powerful, very influential because it was tied to funding. And Abraham Flexner was an educator. He was not a physician. He, he visited all the medical schools in the country and he wrote them up um, and, and, and proposed a model of what an, an appropriate medical school should look like. 
And this is how he codified what our modern medical schools are like right now. And so the Flexner model is you need to have patience and labs. You need what Robert Koch had and what they had in the Parisian hospitals of the 18th century. So you need labs and patients. Uh, you should have two years of, of, of scientific experience and two years of clinical experience. And this was to get away from the, the mom and pop guild type model of, of medicine, that it should become more academic, right? It's not a, a, a tutorial, it's a true academic and scientific endeavor. The number one hospital that, that had all the pieces was Johns Hopkins. Um, and as you see there in the slide, there were 148 medical schools uh, in the early 1900s after the Flexner report, uh, it went down to 66, so less than half. Uh, and importantly, there were seven medical schools that were uh, historically black. Um, and after the report, uh, it, was, it came down to two. So, uh, very influential. But the point to this that I think is really, really important is that we've only been doing modern medicine, only been doing modern medicine for 110 years or so, right? We've only been doing flexnerian medicine uh, for 100 years. And already you get a sense that things are changing. So for those who are in the medical education space, uh, this is the ACGME, which is the inheritor of Abraham Flexner uh, or the heir of uh, Abraham Flexner. And you know there are these six core competencies and you can see that fund of knowledge is only one of the six. So it's more, medicine is more than just what you know in the lab, that you've got to take care of patients. You got to know how systems work. You got to have good communication skills, professionalism, so I, I, I tell, I tell the, the good tribe, uh, the MedPeds residents, I say all the time, the medicine is easy, everything else is hard. <laughs> so, all right. Um, so I invite us to take out your phones and ask this question. What age are we in now? Are we in the age of technology, synthesis, post-modernity, uh, anxiety, the age of anxiety or something else? So I invite us, I hope this is working. Um, and, uh, oh, good. So give me a thumbs up if you, if it's working there. Okay. Cause I can't see the QR code on my, I'm going to go back and see if, uh, let me backtrack one here. Boom. Cause get the QR code. Boom. QR code. Pow. All right. Okay. Technology synthesis, post-modernity, age of anxiety. <laughs> age of anxiety. Uh, when has it not been the age of anxiety, I wonder? Something else. Ooh, something else coming up. The age of technology, of course. Okay. Synthesis. Um, all right. Well, this is the part where, let's see, someone said something in the chat. I'm looking for all the above. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so my theory is actually the one that, um, yeah, post-modernity. So my theory is 
um, actually the age of synthesis, uh, which is interesting because, you know, no one picked it. <laughs> uh, so, but it, it comes from this idea of, of Hegel, who was this 18th century ideal, idealist uh, philosopher. He was post, he was post uh, uh, Immanuel Kant, if I recall. Anyway, he had this idea that you had a thesis, there was the opposite of the thesis, but the project of life was to reconcile our thesis and antithesis and come up with something new, come, come up with synthesis, synthesize a new, a, a new thought. And then that synthesis becomes the new thesis, which we then must reconcile with antithesis the opposite. And this is what I mean by this. You know, if we're taking care of a patient and the creatinine is up suggestive of renal failure and dehydration, but then they have lower extremity edema, and maybe we get an echo of their heart and we think they're, they have some diastolic dysfunction, but maybe preserved ejection fraction. The question is, does the patient have, is the patient volume overloaded or are they dehydrated? Do they need volume? because their creatinine is up and they have renal failure? Or do they need diuresis because they have lower extremity edema and diastolic dysfunction? So those are two opposite things, right? There's synthesis, there's antithesis, but we have to come up with this new thing. And I think because of the technology and because of maybe the anxiety, <laughs> because we have so much information, right? A fire hose of information, uh, a library with, with uh, floors of books and AI models that chew through this for us. Uh, we are in this position, I think, of, of synthesis. That's my idea. Um, but I, I, I invite us all to, to consider for yourself, um, what is your identity as a healer? And so if you go to the, the website, polev.com slash wisdom. Or if you look at your phone, it should be there now. And I invite you, are you a priest, philosopher, scientist, something else? Um, and I invite you to submit this. Um, so someone put encourager. Um, but how do you identify with your role as healer? I invite you to... Um, to consider this. Um, innovator, okay. And I, I did this with the MedPeds residents and um, we came up with this t-shirt. <laughs> I'm gonna show you my t-shirt. Um, so, oh, there we go, compassionate witness. All right, so this is the t-shirt that we, we built from our word cloud. Um, and so it says here on our word cloud, it says, you know, spiritual counselor, companion, conductor, listener, advocate, um, priestly. Oh yeah, witness, compassionate, innovator, healer, priestly witness. You guys, this is lovely. One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, and there we go. Oh my goodness, the computer just popped there. That is so marvelous. Let's see, persons toward innovator, encourager, healer, space, healing, assisting, expertise, holds compassionate 
level companion journey. You guys, that's really marvelous. I'm going to send this around um, in the chat so that we can have it. Um, and I will, uh, and this is the gang. This is the MedPeds program. These are my people. And so I try out all these ideas on them <laughs> and they tell me if it's cool or not. Uh, so folks, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll stop the share and you know what I'll do? Maybe I'll, I'll stop the recording so we can, we can, you know, have some open conversation. So I'll stop.